Get Daniel chapter 2 if you're going to stay with us. Daniel chapter 2. And uh, just a quick diagnostic question. We, we're leaving the fans going, which I'm sure you can appreciate. Can you guys hear me okay? Right? Even if I come down about here, we're still good. I don't have to get too loud. All right. Daniel chapter 2. And as you're finding Daniel 2 verse 31, by the grace of God, we're going to cover quite a bit of, of uh, quite a few verses this morning, Lord willing. Thought crossed my mind, this might be our last church service. You ever thought about that? When you come to church Sunday, this might be the last one. The, the Lord could come back, you know that, right? I mean, some of you were looking scared like, are we shutting down the church? We're not... <laughs> Church is doing fine. We're just, I'm just saying the Lord could come back. This might be it. So enjoy it while you can. Amen. Make the most of it. Daniel 2, verse number 31. Now I'm going to give you three parts to the end of the chapter. Verses 31 to 35. Presentation of the revelation. Daniel's going to reveal the dream that Neb, Nebuchadnezzar's been asking about. 36 to 45. Explanation of the revelation. And then 46 to 49 exaltation due to the revelation. Daniel and his friends get exalted. So let's look at these first few verses. This is the presentation of the revelation. Verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. Now, as soon as Daniel says that, you know how it is if you've forgotten something and somebody says one little part of what you forgot, boom, it instantly comes back in your mind? Right there when Daniel says, King, Thou sawest, and behold, a great image. And, and Nebuchadnezzar's face lights up and says, and I can see he probably leaned in and goes, yeah, yeah, keep going. What else was there? This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Now, terrible in the Bible is not like a bad thing. Not every time. Terrible is just, me it means it's something that gets your attention. It can invoke terror, yes, in a scary way, but also in a reverential way. Verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces." Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So I've given you the entire presentation of the revelation. We're, we're going to get to the explanation just now. Daniel does that for us, so I don't need to explain that as we go through those few verses. I just want to give you an observation or two as we've looked at this presentation. Now, number one, each, each element here, the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron, it represents a different kingdom. You can see there is a descending order. You see that, right? Gold, that's as good as it gets, and then silver's a step down from that, etc., etc. This is different versions of political kingdoms. Politics are not the answer, right? Now, I think you already know that just by natural observation, but biblically speaking, politics are not going to fix things. I say that so that you don't get excited about or put your faith in politics. 
Now, I don't think that needs to be um, expounded much, really anywhere but in South Africa. I don't think we're looking to our, our uh, government to fix all of our problems. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse until it all falls apart. Biblically, there's your answer. It doesn't get better until the stone cut out without hands, which is Jesus Christ, until he comes back and destroys the whole mess that the world has made and establishes his kingdom. All right, another observation. There is entropy in a closed system. Now, I know that's a scientific thing. I'm not a science man, so I'm not going to try to go too far down that path. But the second law of thermodynamics says there's entropy in a closed system. All that really means is things run down. In a closed system, things do not get better over time. That's evolution. That's not scientific. Things don't get, you don't get better over time. Say, I'm in my 20s. Oh, wait till you get past your, just wait a few years. You'll find out. You'll find out. I mean, you're feeling strong today. You'll get there. You'll get there. In a closed system, you as an individual, you are a closed system, things run down. Now, unless you get some outside help, you'll run down very quickly. But even with outside help, just naturally speaking now, we run down. So there's entropy in a closed system. Over time, you get weaker, slower, less healthy, and all of that. In the Bible, you're going to see this, that God creates everything perfect, right? He creates a universe. There is a closed system. Now, if, if God steps away and doesn't keep his hand on that universe, it slowly runs down and down and down. The more we allow God to be involved in what he has made, the better it stays. Now, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon's observation, this only have I found, he says, that God made man upright. What God did, it was perfect. It was good. Even God on the seventh day stood back, sixth day rather, stood back and said, the work that I've done is very good. This only have I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. The system that God originally created would have been sustainable. It would have been, to use another scientific term, perpetual motion, right? It would have just worked and worked and worked. But man brought in his own invention, said, let me do it my way instead of God's way. Thus entropy, the running down of something, the losing of of its strength, that, that came into view. So here's my advice. Open your system. There's entropy in a closed system. You by yourself, you're not going to be able to maintain yourself. You need to open your system and let God introduce some help from the outside. If you don't, you're just going to go from Gold to silver to brass to iron to... <laughs> and it's all going to fall to pieces. Hold your place here. Get Second Corinthians chapter 3. Real quick practical thought or two. Second Corinthians 3. So today we're going to give you some practical thoughts, but we're all gonna, also going to get some prophetical thoughts. And we're going to get a bit deep today. Get some doctrinal stuff in here as well. Second Corinthians 3. And let's look at verse number five. Paul says here, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Now, do you see how Paul has put that real practical? The scientific thing would be to say there's entropy in the closed system. Paul's saying we are not sufficient in and of ourselves to maintain ourselves. 
But then he goes on to say, but our sufficiency is of God. What keeps me going? God does. Grace, strength. He continually teaches me. He continually molds me, changes me, conforms me to be more and more like his son. Without the work of the Holy Spirit changing me to become like him, I'm just going to go the other way. I'm going to become more like Adam. Down, down, down. On you go. Verse 18, look at, look at what it says here. Paul says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, that glass, by the way, is your Bible, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. So when you read your Bible, look for that. Look for how great Jesus Christ is when you read your Bible. If you look hard enough, you'll see his face on every page. As in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory, that's the glory of a man, to glory, the glory of Jesus Christ, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So don't be a closed system. Open that system. Say, God, I'm not sufficient. Please help. All right, come back to Daniel chapter 2 now. Daniel chapter 2. And now let's take a look at the explanation of the revelation. Verse 36, this is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Now notice the article A. A king of kings. Not the king of kings. A king of kings. All right, there's a distinction there. So of all the kings of the earth, at that time, Nebuchadnezzar was the king or a king of those kings. Right? So just speaking of his generation. This does not say anything about Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual uh, character says nothing about his moral capacity, right? There, nothing about his life would tell us that he was some kind of a, a great spiritual man. We're talking about political and secular power. So just, just look at the political power of his kingdom. It, it went far, and beyond, uh, far, far beyond any other kingdom at that time. In verse number 37, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. So to say it simply, God has allowed this in your life and, and God has orchestrated you to be in this position. If you're Nebuchadnezzar, you've got to be thinking in your mind, you should be learning right now, I didn't build Babylon by myself. There was help from the outside that maybe I wasn't even aware of while it was happening, but it was there. Now you know why that's important? Because in Daniel chapter 4, you know what Nebuchadnezzar said? Look at this great Babylon that I have built. He didn't learn. He should have, but he didn't learn. You know what happens shortly thereafter? He's out there eating grass like an ox. And his hair grows out like eagle's uh, feathers. I mean, God says, okay, I'll let you see what you are without me. You, you, just, go, you just go straight backwards without me. So he didn't learn. Verse 38, And wheresoever the children of men dwell... Now, of course, this would be, let's call it the then-known world. I know there were people in South America and China and Africa, and perhaps Nebuchadnezzar didn't know about all those people, but the people that he did know about, his sphere of influence, wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he, God, given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So, this fits perfectly with what God said back in Genesis chapter 1. Hold your place here. Just take a quick look. 
Genesis 1 and verse number 28. When God formed man and put him on this earth, he also gave him the duty, let's call it a privilege, to be the superintendent of the earth. He's in charge, and it is his responsibility to take care of it. Now, let me just tell you, I, I don't believe in all this global warming stuff that you hear about on the news. I get it that perhaps uh, ice caps are melting here and there, and perhaps the temperature is changing, but when doesn't it? Now, this is an extremely hot year, but I've had hot years before. That, that, those things come and go. I, biblically speaking now, I know that the earth is, is going to give out one day. Right? If you know your Bible, you know that's true. Revelation 20, right? heaven and earth flee away. 2 Peter chapter 3, it's all going to burn up eventually. It is not, we are not going to explode the planet in the meantime. Now, that being said, even though I don't, I, I believe all of this scientific stuff that they, you know, talk about with the environment, let me not go as far as to say weaponizing it, but they certainly politicize it. They use these environmental causes to, to stir up an emotional reaction to say, listen, we care about the environment, vote for us. Not that they really care about the environment so much. Now, that being said, I, th I think a lot of those things are just, you know, sm smoke and, and mirrors kind of stuff. But it is our job to take care of the environment, okay? So even though I think a lot of that stuff is bogus, I, I, I'm not going to run so far the other way that I say, well, let's just trash the earth. It's going to burn anyway, so let's just do whatever we want. I think we should be smart about how we treat nature. God created an incredibly impressive world around us. Let's not take that lightly. We are in charge. It is our responsibility to take care of it. So, you know, when it comes to things like recycling, absolutely do it. Why not, you know? When it comes to uh, conserving trees and things like that and, and our energy sources, amen. Let's not pollute. Don't pollute my air. Amen. Don't pollute my... Don't, don't even noise pollute. Amen. Don't even noise pollute. You know that affects your health a lot more than people realize. When there's a lot of loud thum, 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 that messes up your, your physical system. That is not good for you. So I, I'm all for let's take care of, of, of nature. I think that's an important thing. You'll see it now. Genesis 1 verse 28. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. You're in control. Control it. Cut the grass, trim the trees, right? That, that's, that's what he's getting at. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So man, <clears throat> mankind has the ability to tame other animals. We can create structures and, and, and maintain uh, ecosystems so that they can thrive and survive and so forth. Uh, chapter 2, you'll see it again, verse 15. God creates the Garden of Eden. And it says, the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. So one of the first, the first job that God gave Adam was to be a gardener. Go take care of the garden that I've created. Now, just take a look real quick. I don't want to harp on this too much, but look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Keep your garden looking nice. Isn't that something? Right? Not only is it there to feed you, that's the next thing, and good for food. Do you see that? 
So yes, I, I, I want to grow food out of it and eat, but it's not just that. I want to have something pretty to look at. God is not against uh, the, the cosmetic side of it, the aesthetics of it. Make it look nice. Make it a place so that when you show up and look at it, you go, man, this is a blessing. You don't want to look at it and go, oh, man, maybe there's gargoyles and Dracula living in there, <laughs> you know, scary stuff. Take care of it. All right, come back to Daniel chapter 2 now. So now that Nebuchadnezzar has reached the top position in the then-known world, it is his job to make sure that people are in the right positions to take care of every part of a kingdom, whether that's the uh, political side, you know, with judicial systems and the police and all of that, uh, the penal code, all of that, and then also the natural side of it, taking care of the fishes and the birds and so forth. Verse 39, he says, And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over the earth. All right, this next kingdom that's inferior, Daniel's making an obvious observation. You go from gold to silver. Now, the head is of gold. It is a singular unit, one head. All right, in Babylon, you had one man in charge. It was Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, and then his son. There was just one man in charge. But the next kingdom and we know this from history now, the next kingdom is Media Persia. The Medes and the Persians came in together, joined up, and conquered Babylon. Now, it is inferior to Babylon. That's, that's what Daniel says here. It's inferior to thee. But how so? Because it conquered Babylon. So when, if we're talking military strength, that's not true. Media Persia conquered them. If we're talking geographical size of the kingdom... Media Persia added to the landmass of Babylon's empire. So it's not inferior in that way. I would say that it's inferior because you don't have one singular man running the show. Now that authority is split between two, two kingdoms, two heads of state, and that's where things get confusing. Who gets to call the shots? Now when Daniel sees this image, it's a head of gold, but then the breast and the arms are of silver, right? So now you, you branch off into two. So it branches off media, Persia, like that. So the, so the image is, is perfectly fitting for that. All right, so media Persia takes over from 536 B.C. until about 336, almost 200 years there that they reigned. The next, in verse 39, the kingdom of brass, this will uh, speak to the, the Grecian Empire, the kingdom of Greece. Now, Greece and Persia, the, the Greco-Persian Wars, they went on for almost 100 years before finally Greece uh, conquered them completely and took all control. I think everybody knows the name Alexander the Great. Yes. Now, I'm not going to go too deep because when we get to Daniel 7, we're going to cover this again. When we get to Daniel 11, guys, in my opinion, pound for pound, the most impressive chapter of prophecy in the whole Bible is Daniel chapter 11. And you're going to read some very specific things about Alexander the Great that did come to pass. Daniel predicted it over 200 years before it happened. But nevertheless, Alexander the Great, he is this third kingdom that's mentioned, and he is also inferior. Alexander quickly conquered the medium Persian Empire, but then expanded as well. If you know history much, Alexander went far east. He went a bit north. He conquered a lot of ground. He went down into northern Africa, and hence the town named Alexandria. It's still in existence today. It was named after Alexander the Great. 
So Alexander did a lot of work, but he died at a very young age. At the age of 33, he died. So he didn't last long. And when he died, his kingdom was split. And you can read about this. Again, we'll cover it in Daniel chapter 11. It was split four ways. And not to his sons, but to four different generals. He had one very young, I think an infant son at the time. So his kingdom was divided between four generals. These generals couldn't get on the same page. So you had two kind of higher up generals and two kind of lower down generals, and it split into four. These are the, this is the thighs of brass. Splits into two, but that also divides off even more. That's why it is inferior to the silver kingdom because the power is not just split between two, but now between four. And, and all four generals are kind of running their own little portion of the kingdom the way they see fit. All right, so now to verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. Now notice it doesn't say inferior. It, it, it doesn't refer to it like that. It just says strong. The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. So iron's not as pretty, right? Not as delicate as gold, silver, and brass. But iron, the one thing you can say about it is it is strong. Rome wasn't necessarily known for its beauty, but for its strength. In 146 AD, they took over and they reigned. Rome's a tricky subject. The political Rome reigned over the then known world until about 476 AD. They still run things, but from different avenues, right? And if you were in church history class last year, we talked quite a bit about that. The Romans, though, even in the time of Jesus, they were a brutal, nasty, vicious bunch of people. They used violence to educate. They used violence to intimidate their citizens and, and almost a forced behavior. They created this method of killing people known as crucifixion. Now, they did this just because it was... There are lots of ways to kill people. And can I use the word humane? Right? You, can, you can do it in such a way that it's not so brutal. But the Romans, simply because they liked brutality, created a torture device that would put criminals to death slowly. And from, now this is a Latin word, there was a new word created to explain the pain of crucifixion. It was so bad. We, we call it excruciating. Do you hear it in the word excruciate, cruciating? That's crucifying. It is excruciating. So, the, I mean, that maybe we talk about some other time, but people would sometimes hang there for days, and eventually you die of asphyxiation. You can't breathe anymore. But the pain that those people would go through. And I think probably you've seen it in Hollywood if you haven't read it in history books, the gladiator games. So this was a Roman invention even before they took over the... Uh, kingdoms of the world. In 264 BC, they held the first gladiator games, and it was just sport to them. Watching people being ripped to shreds by lions and tigers, that was just fun and games. They would cheer and, you know, if you haven't seen the movie Gladiator, I mean, I'm, most people have by this point, but, you know, the emperor holds his thumb up or thumb down, and then that determines whether or not the prisoner lives or dies and all of that stuff. Ro Rome, at a certain point, Listen to this. Christians were put to death because they did not go to the gladiator games. They would not take part in the Sunday afternoon sporting event. Right? Now, now, let's not say that rugby and cricket is on the same level as the gladiators, okay? So don't, don't feel any conviction just because you, you happen to play a game or watch a sport. But, but the Christians would not partake in that 
and they were seen as anti-Roman. That's how normal it was for Romans to go watch people die. Now, just so, so you can see how desensitized we are, we buy our kids video games so that they can watch people die. Now, I know it's not real people, but it does desensitize them just a bit. Just be mindful of that. So Rome, very fitting description is to say strong as iron, very brutal, very strong. In verse 40, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, that is, if you put gold up against iron and beat the two together, iron's going to win, and with any of those other metals. It breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. It's not just going to break it, it's going to bruise it. It's going to make sure that there's pain involved. Verse 41, And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. All right, now we're starting to get a bit deep, so let me try to break this down slowly for you. So you have the, from the knee down, think of the image, from the knee down, you have the iron, okay? So there's a long stretch there where Rome is in charge of things. Then you get down to the feet, okay? So the feet, you, you take a turn. The Roman Empire took a turn. In 476, the political empire went down, but the spiritual empire came up. Things changed. And then there's the revived Roman Empire, and that's something that we're dealing with in the end times. Right now, today, they're working on that. So the iron legs go for a while, and then come at the end, you have the feet and the toes. Ten toes. Ten toes. Those ten toes you read about, we're going to show you now, later on in Daniel, and in the book of Revelation. They are the ten kings that are going to rule underneath the authority of the Antichrist. Now, just laying a little groundwork. You see in verse 41, you saw the feet and toes, part of clay, part of iron. So it's partly strong, partly weak. All right, now let's look at Daniel 7, and let's look at the weak and the strong here. Daniel 7, did I lose it here? There we go. Daniel 7, and let's get verse number... 23. Now, forgive me, guys. I'm, I'm going to move through this. Um, if some of this goes over your head, don't worry. Just make a few notes, and as you read through your Bible, learn a little bit more. This will come easy to you. Daniel 7, verse 23. Daniel has seen another vision here. It's the same vision, actually, except instead of an image, this time Daniel sees four different beasts. And the fourth beast is Rome. All right, so verse number 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. This is where we get the idea of a one-world kingdom that the Antichrist runs. He devours the whole earth. Verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, the first ten, and he shall subdue three kings. All right, so before the Antichrist rises, you've heard me say this in church plenty of times in Bible school, the Antichrist, before he is ever a religious figure, 
he is a political figure. He will be a politician first and foremost. Before he can rise, you have to have these ten kings come together. They are going to create some sort of confederacy or federation or union, however they want to name that, you know. In today's world, we have the United Nations, the European Union, things like that. So you're going to have something like that with ten kings coming together. And then the Antichrist rises up and he subdues, he conquers, brings into sub, uh, subjection three of those kings. So ten, um, <clears throat> seven of the toes are iron, alas, eister, and you can't overcome them. But the three that get overcome, there's your clay. You see, so partly strong, partly broken. Now, come back to Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> Uh, you can hold Daniel 2. I want you to get Revelation chapter 17 in your other hand. All right, let's get Revelation 17 and keep Daniel 2. We're going to have to do some comparing Scripture with Scripture here. All right, look with me. Ooh, that jumped up. Look with me here. Look at Daniel 2. Let's get verse number 41 at the end of it. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. All right, so you got some strong kings, some weak kings. Verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Now watch how verse 43, there's a bit of a shift. Verse 43, and whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay. Right. Those two things don't mix so well. But they will mix to a certain extent. So you have ten kings come together. Antichrist rises up, takes over three. But then the Antichrist uses them as a, as a stepladder, if you will. And he now rises up over all of them. And this little springboard... His ascendancy, he now has power over all ten. And he unites and bring those, brings those ten kings together in a way that they, gives them a strength and a power and authority unlike they had before. So he unites them in an even stronger way than they had heretofore known. Now in verse 43, Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. That's a strange statement. Are they not men themselves? Have you ever seen or heard of politicians that get a little too head heavy with their power? That their power goes to their head? And as soon as they have all this power and authority, it's as if they don't even think they're one of us. You know, cut me, I will bleed. As if they have to say that. We know that you'll bleed. You, you don't have to announce that. But... In, in the tribulation time, these kings start to think, we're not, we're not like one of you. We're a step ahead. We're, we're a step above. Almost like a demigod, in a sense. All right, so hold your place here. Get Revelation 17. And let's look at verse number 12. So they mingle themselves with the seed of men. But there's a distinction there. We are not like you. We're, we're better above you. Revelation 17, verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. 
Right, so these are just 10 representatives that come out of various places, form this federation, this union. But once the Antichrist rises up, he brings them together and gives them even more power. Verse 12, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So for a specific time, the Antichrist says from this moment forward, you guys are this, I'm elevating you. And now they're not like the rest of us. In verse 13, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Uh, you can come on down just a little bit to verse 17. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So, the clay and the iron, those kings come together, they mix. But they, they view themselves as better than the rest of humanity. So they don't mingle with the seed of men in that way. Or I'm sorry, they mingle but they think they're better. They don't cleave. Come on down to get Daniel 2 verse 43. You'll see it at the end here. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, so they still live on the planet and work amongst us, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. So now they say, listen, we, we are now iron. The, the Antichrist, this great beast, has united us. We are now strong. And now those ten toes are iron. But the people of the earth become the clay. And they say, you're the weakness. We are now strong because this Antichrist has imbued us with strength. And thus the division is made even further. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with politics in North Korea, but you understand the, what do they call him, the prime minister or leader president of Korea, North Korea. He claims to be a god. And the people actually worship him and pray to him as a god. In a certain place that we are familiar with where Fricky and Frickalina work right now, they are now praying to that leader. They pray to the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and that guy. Some of, the, some of those people are elevating him this way. So it doesn't surprise me when we find verses where you hear about kings letting the power go to their head and all of a sudden they think they're above the rest. All right, so let's keep moving. Daniel 2 and verse number 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. All right, the kingdom that shall never be destroyed, that's the everlasting kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says it will not be left, right? The kingdom shall not be left to other people. In Daniel chapter 7, it talks about how the saints of the Most High, not only is Jesus as King of Kings running the place, but He gives us the privilege of having positions of authority in that kingdom. Right? And then it says in verse 45, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Right? If you would, just uh, hold this and get Colossians chapter 2. The stone cut out without hands. So this terminology, to be cut out without hands, that's another way of saying it is a spiritual entity. It's not something physical or organic. Uh, it's not something natural or of the earth, maybe is a better way to say it. Colossians 2, look at verse 11. Colossians 2 and 11. You'll see the same wording here. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You see that? 
in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we all are familiar with what a natural circumcision is. Please, there needs to be hands involved, you know, for, for, that, for that particular operation. This one is made without hands. It is a spiritual circumcision. Now, come back, read that into Daniel chapter 2 using the Bible to interpret itself. If it is cut out of the mountain without hands, then this particular stone, it was brought forth not through natural, organic, physical, earthly ways or methods. Jesus is not of this world, right? He didn't come into this world in a natural, normal way. He came down from heaven. Now, his second coming will be the same way. When, he, when Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, unlike the Jews of this present generation, they believe the Messiah will be born through just natural means. He will be some great politician that rises up or just some great man that rises up and conquers the enemy and gives Israel their, their kingdom back. But that's not the case. This stone is cut out of the mountain, made without hands, right? Cut without hands. So Jesus' is coming is not just of this world. It's something otherworldly. And now, holding Daniel, I want you to get two other places. I want you to get Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah 51, and in your other hand, Zechariah chapter 4. Now, the Bible's talking about mountains here in Daniel 2. It says that this stone is cut out of a mountain. It's cut without hands. It comes back and it falls on these other kingdoms, destroys them. And then the Bible tells us that that mount, that stone becomes a great mountain. Right, so what are we dealing with there? So Jesus is that stone. I'll show you verses on that in just a moment. But when we talk about mountains, mountains are used as a metaphor for kingdoms. And it's not just in Daniel. Uh, Jeremiah 51, look at verse 25. Now he's talking about Babylon here. Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain. Babylon was destroying the Jews at this point. I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyest all the earth. And I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and roll thee down from the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. That is exactly how Babylon ended, burnt mountain. To the ground. You can read that in Daniel, read that in Nahum, many other places. Get Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4. Now, this is the same, uh, he's dealing with the same group here, talking, talking to about uh, the Jews coming out of captivity and so forth. Talking about Babylon. Verse 7 Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone. There's Jesus. Thereof with shoutings, crying, grace, grace unto it. So this idea of a mountain being a kingdom is used consistently through the Bible. Now the stone is cut out of the mountain without hands. So there is a heavenly kingdom. And Jesus originates from there. That stone was cut from that heavenly kingdom, comes to the earth and creates a worldwide earthly kingdom. It is heaven on earth. All right, let me give you the verses for that. Uh, let's get Ezekiel chapter 28. So there is a mountain up in heaven. Did you guys know that? A couple weeks ago I preached on, 
a little taste of heaven. I told you there were palm trees in heaven. You'd be surprised how many people came to me afterwards and said, what else? What else is up there, right? I mean, they, they really want to know. You'll find out soon enough, amen. Ezekiel chapter 28, but there's a mountain up in heaven. Ezekiel 28, verse 16. The Bible says, by the multitude of thy merchandise. Now, this is God speaking about Satan, actually, and the fall of Satan. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore, I will cast thee as profane out of the, what? Mountain of God. You see that? There's a mountain up there. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So there's a mountain up in heaven. All right, take your Bible. Come to Psalm chapter 48. Psalm chapter 48. I'm just going to give you a couple more verses, and then I don't think we're going to finish Daniel 2, but that's all right. Psalm 48, verse 1. Psalm 48, verse 1. Great is the Lord. Amen. And greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of His holiness. Now, this is one of those unique places in the Bible. You guys probably should mark these down. Where the Bible's saying one thing, but it applies in two places. This is true of God's earthly city, Jerusalem, Zion, and the mountain that is there physically. But it is also true of the one in heaven. Right, keep reading, verse 2, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now that is true of the earthly Jerusalem and Zion, many prophecies about Jesus being there, but take your Bible, come to Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, and, and you'll see now unequivocally there is a mountain called Zion up in heaven. Revelation 14 and verse 1. Right, Revelation 14 and 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And you can read on the next four or five verses. This is clearly something going on up in heaven. So in heaven, we have now identified the mountain of God. It is Mount Sion. So when you read about that in the Old Testament, you're getting a, a picture of what's going on up in heaven. One last verse, get Matthew chapter 21, and we'll finish up in Matthew 21. Jesus has given a parable here. Let's begin reading in verse 42. He gave a parable about... The, uh, a householder planting a vineyard, letting it out uh, to people, and then he sends servants to get the fruit. But when the servants come, they get beaten, and some are killed, and then finally says, I know what they'll, they'll take. They'll accept my son. So the householder sends his son, and the people kill him too. This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance and so forth. Jesus tells them this in verse 42. He saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone? There you go, Daniel 2. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. There's your headstone, Zechariah 4. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he's quoting Psalm 118 there. Verse 43, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, the Jewish nation, and given to a nation 
bringing forth the fruits thereof. That's us, the spiritual nation, the body of Christ, and that's something we'll cover at another time. Verse 42, and whosoever, uh, did I say 42? 44, forgive me. Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. What is that? Jesus is called, 1 Peter 2, Romans chapter 11, chapter 9 as well. Jesus is called the stumbling stone. Many people do stumble at that stone. There's G Jesus is going to put himself in your path eventually. You can't get around him. If you get to that stone and you don't receive it but stumble over it and you fall on it, if you fall on this stone, you'll be broken. Everything falls apart in life and in eternity. The next part. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That's talking about the second coming of Christ. When that stone comes down from heaven and boom, battle of Armageddon and wipes out everybody and everything, every kingdom in its path. Complete destruction. But once that happens, then he establishes his kingdom on this earth. So, I end on a practical note here. Make sure today, right, that stone is not falling. It's not falling from heaven right now, but it is in your path. Make sure today you don't trip. Make sure you don't stumble at that stone. All right, let's all stand if you would, please. Father, thank you for giving us so much to think about, and your book consistently impresses us how interconnected it is and how one page interprets the other page. We thank you for sending that stone cut without hands, a little piece of heaven down here to this earth, and help us. Lord, perhaps somebody heard this now and uh, they've never been saved. Might, might they take a long look at that headstone and cry unto it and say, Grace, grace. Lord, please uh, bless our fellowship and our service to come in Jesus' name. Amen.